So it's a basic element of many attempts to develop a modern articulation of Madhyamaka uh, to say that uh, what we know and indeed uh, what exists conventionally is from one of many possible perspectives. Uh, we heard George, for example, in the last talk saying that for Madhyamaka, knowledge is perspectival. Okay. And so uh, my, the primary focus of my discussion today uh, which is coming off of this handout, will be to explore whether we can give a textual foundation of any kind um, for this kind of Madhyamaka perspectivism, and whether we can overcome a certain reading of Chandrakirti, uh, which would make that idea of multiple perspectives not make any sense. Uh, so, so some of what I want to say about the, uh, the contribution of modern philosophy to Madhyamaka is relatively obvious, but nevertheless, it was uh, Jay who first made me see clearly that the analogy of a mirage is uh, extraordinarily helpful and valuable in trying to understand how Madhyamaka sees the way that entities exist. Uh, now, a crucial part of what does the work in the analogy of the mirage is precisely that the mirage is a perspective-dependent entity, right? And there's hardly any distance between saying that a thing exists in a perspective-dependent way and saying that there's another perspective from which it doesn't exist. Moreover, uh, let's think for a moment about the uh, standard late Indian Buddhist definition of conventional truth as avichara manohara, which I'd like to translate as that which satisfies when not analyzed. Okay? Well, what do we mean by satisfy? Obviously, we mean leads to successful practice. right? And successful practice clearly comes in many different forms and is also equally clearly a matter of degree. So if the conventional is that which leads to successful practice, uh, then we might expect that there would be various forms of the conventional, some of which lead to successful practice to a greater degree than others. <coughs> However, there's a reading of Chandrakirti uh, that would essentially block our ability to make these claims. Now, I don't assert that this is the best or even a good reading of Chandrakirti, um, I do assert that it has some textual motivation, um, and I find this in uh, Dan Arnold, for example, who uh, asks rhetorically, uh, what is there for the conventional to be other than our conventions? Okay. Now, uh, where might me, might me find uh, textual support for the reading of Chandrakirti that I'm worried about? Okay. Well, just consider quotation one on the handout. I'll read the first verse. Understanding based on apprehension by any of the six unimpaired faculties is true by the standard of everyday experience, while any remaining reified concepts are false according to the same criterion. So, right, here we have an account of the conventional, which is focused on what Sellers would have called the manifest image, right? The conventional is the world as it appears to us. Now, there's a tricky issue here, which Mark called my attention to, uh, what is the role of inference in this picture? Okay, how for Chandrakirti can we know that there is such a thing as a sense of sight? 
Okay, when, as Vasubandhu points out at the beginning of Abhidharma Kosha chapter 9, we know the existence of the sense of sight inferentially. Okay, well, the most likely thing for Chandrakirti to say is that inference and other pramanas that he might believe in are included in mental consciousness, okay, and therefore get to count as within the six unimpaired faculties. Nevertheless, right, we can see in this passage a, a presupposition, it appears, that there is one thing that it is for our faculties to be impaired or unimpaired, and there's a single conventional truth based on how the world presents to us. Now, a different sort of creature, an animal, a hungry ghost, a god, uh, might have a different world of lived experience, and so uh, different things might exist conventionally for that being. So even within Chandrakirti, we would have a certain sense of different perspectives. Uh, but it, it seems that uh, we can read Chandrakirti as thinking that there's really only one conceptual scheme, only one conventional perspective that's accessible to us humans. Okay. Uh, now if we look at number two, unskilled in ultimate and conventional truths, you sometimes apply analytical standards inappropriately and destroy the conventional. Because we are skilled in positing conventional truths, we stay with the world's position, and we use its conventional standards to overturn the standards you set so as to eliminate the category of conventionalities. Like the elders of the world, we drive out only you who deviate from the traditional standards of the world. We do not drive out conventionalities. Now, I, want, I don't claim that there's only one reading of this passage. It seems to me that there's a uh, straightforward and uh, very damaging reading of this passage, and then there's a less straightforward and less damaging reading of the passage. Okay, so the, um, the straightforward and damaging reading is that for Chandrakirti, cultural difference isn't salient. So we have one set of elders of the world who are the guardians of the traditional standards, right? and we are not allowed to criticize or deviate from uh, their understanding of what exists and how we should conduct ourselves, okay? Uh, so that we should just take that as read from the perspective of the conventional. Although we certainly can analyze it and discover that it does not have any ultimate status, we can't revise it. Now that reading um, gets us into a number of problems, right? So Chandrakirti doesn't know about science, so he doesn't know that the systematic construction of theories that posit unobservable entities can lead to revisions in our practice that make our practice more successful. Okay, we know that. And so one of the fundamental challenges uh, that face a wide range of contemporary philosophies is to explain how the, uh, the world of our lived experience, the manifest image, can coexist with the image that science presents to us. Okay, so that's one problem. Another problem is how do we take cultural difference seriously? Uh, so if within Madhyamaka we accept that something can exist because my culture teaches me to see it, right? Well, another culture isn't going to teach people to see the same things in situations. And Chandrakirti doesn't seem to have a lot of equipment available to take seriously those cultural differences. Most importantly, from my point of view, um, this more straightforward reading leads us directly deep into the dismal slough. So this is how I started uh, thinking about these issues. Right. Here's one articulation of the dismal slough, this problem that we, we cowherds have been talking about and confronting uh, during the writing of our recent um, book, 
moon paths. Uh, suppose we say that uh, moral, moral standards, moral norms, are conventional. Okay? Now that's a move that mediumicas have to make. I mean, it's been a concern about mediumica ever since it started to emerge in India, that it's going to lead to moral erosion and moral collapse, right? If you really take this on board, you turn into a monster, okay? And I don't think that that worry is uh, particularly difficult to address. You can regard normativity as part of the conventional, okay? Now, you don't have a problem with moral erosion, except that if by the conventional you just mean our society's conventions, now we are unable to critique the conventions of our society. We have no place outside our society to stand, uh, or within it, to stand from which to critique whatever the elders of the world tell us, even if it is monstrously sexist, regressive, justifies unjustifiable social inequalities, and so on. So, even if it's not the case that this view will turn us into a monster, um, if, into monsters, if this view offers us as our options only um, ethnocentric chauvinism and mindless relativism, that's hardly any better. Moreover, <laughs> I'll, I'll continue to do so. Well, actually, now I'll really speak for myself. Right? Um, it, it seems to me that we should understand uh, at least Shantideva and, and probably um, many other Buddhists as well as thinking that the moral rules of society and of subgroups within society have a justifying purpose, right? What they are for is to promote the well-being of uh, sentient creatures. Okay, and that allows us to have a standpoint from which to criticize and improve them. Uh, but uh, this reading of Chandrakirti that I'm talking about uh, would deprive us of the possibility of such critique. Okay, now there's a much less ambitious reading of passage two. You can say, the world's position is not all the details of what our society tells us about everything. The world's position is just certain very, very basic, very general features of how human beings conceptually think about and, and pragmatically relate to the world. So fundamental that if you deny them, uh, you undercut uh, every human culture's understanding. So for example, if you come up with a philosophical view which makes it impossible for you to understand how change can occur. Right? If you come up with a philosophical view that makes it impossible for you to understand how causation can be possible, and Madhyamaka has notoriously accused their opponents uh, of doing this wholesale, well, now you've um, destroyed uh, very, very general ways of coping with and understanding experience that we can hardly do without. Okay? And then um, we will drive you out as the elders of the world do, in the language of the passage. Okay, now that reading of Chandrakirti doesn't get us any deeper into the dismal slough, but it doesn't give us any way of getting out either. Okay. What we want in order to get out is the idea that there are various different perspectives, and these different perspectives each come with their own ontology. And the things 
And if these perspectives are pragmatically useful, then the things that they posit get to exist conventionally, and those perspectives get to be forms of conventional truth. Okay, now something else that we're going to want is we're going to want to be able to order these perspectives hierarchically along certain dimensions. Okay, so, so there's obviously something deeply uh, illegitimate and, and uh, rash about uh, saying that, you know, um, British culture is better than Japanese culture or something like that, but we do want to make the statement that the abolition of slavery in the United States after the Civil War was an improvement, that the abolition of Jim Crow after the Civil Rights Movement was an improvement. In order to do that, we have to be able to compare a set of social norms and values that were working reasonably okay with a set of social norms and values that were working better and say that the one was better than the other. Okay, so now the question is, given that we can understand this perfectly well philosophically, can we find a textual anchor on which to, to gain some access into the Indian tradition for the idea of different perspectives with different incompatible ontologies, that some of which are better than others? And, and you would think that we would be able to do that, right? I mean, it seems like the idea of ontological relativity and the idea of things arising like a magical display are just made for each other, right? So think for a moment about Hilary Putnam's uh, example, about geometrical points. Okay, we can think of uh, geometrical points as simple objects, um, uh, individuals of which we're going to construct space-time regions. Or we can think of geometrical points as limits of uh, concentric spheres, which get smaller and smaller. And either way is exactly as good for practical purposes. Either way will allow us to do all the mathematics that we want to do, and yet they seem to have incompatible ontologies. We can find many examples of this in science. Okay. And from a realist point of view, this kind of ontological relativity is deeply uncomfortable, if not wholly unacceptable. There has to be a right answer, okay? But from a Mediumica point of view, it seems, there wouldn't have to be a right answer. But that immediately implies that there isn't just one conventional truth. Okay, so does anybody in the Indian tradition have more than one conventional truth? Answer, Shantideva and Prajnakaramati do. Okay, we have a passage in Bodhicharavatara 9 that gives us, I think, uh, all of the most important features that we want uh, if we're going to bring this idea of um, perspective, uh, perspect perspectival knowledge and uh, ontological relativity to bear. Okay, and so here I have in mind Bodhicharya Avatara 9, verses 7 through 8. Okay, here's how I would translate those. The Lord taught in terms of existent things in order to guide the world. Objection. To say that they are not momentary in reality, but are momentary conventionally, is a contradiction. Reply. There is no problem with the conventional truth of the meditator, the yogi samvirti, because meditators see more accurately than the worldly do. Okay, that'll take us a while to unpack. So read, let's read some pieces of Prajnakaramati's commentary. Okay, starting with uh, the first part of selection four. Objection. 
To say that they are momentary conventionally, not ultimately, is contradictory, not consistent. This contradicts a common belief, the belief in non-momentariness. Since those participating in everyday practice believe in non-momentariness, momentariness is not conventionally accepted. Okay? Uh, now, at least the way that most uh, Buddhist philosophers think about momentariness, this is a very powerful objection. Yeah, maybe not if we take Tsongkhapa's view, but, but an overwhelming majority of interpretations of momentariness, this is a powerful objection. Uh, if you imagine some construction workers building a house, from their pragmatic perspective in that situation, right, uh, momentariness is irrelevant or harmful. Right? They, they, they want to be able to think of their tools and their building materials and the structure they're building as persisting through time. Right? They're not going to think of those things as momentary. So it, it's, it's overwhelmingly plausible at first blush that momentariness is going to be true ultimately, if it's true at all. all right? it, it, the idea that it's going to be true conventionally uh, is simply ruled out from the start. Certainly it's ruled out from the start if we think that what's conventionally true is just our conventions. Okay? And so if you want to be a Madhyamaka and you want to claim that uh, momentary things are not ultimately established and that nothing can have any properties from the ultimate point of view, uh, you're going to be forced to regard momentariness as false in every respect, both ultimately and conventionally. Okay, so how is Prajnyakaramati going to respond? He says, there is no problem here of contradicting common belief. Why? Because momentariness is accepted by the conventional pragmatic perspective of meditators who have attained the meditative absorption that reveals the selflessness of persons. And the pragmatic perspective of the meditator does not fail to be conventional because the scriptures say the intellect is conventional. Right, so if you're building a house, uh, momentariness isn't helpful. On the other hand, Prajnakarmati seems to think that if you're engaged in meditation with the goal of stopping the process of suffering by seeing into its workings, and you've already made a considerable amount of progress towards that goal, then there's a natural way that things are going to seem to you, which is gonna help you make further progress toward that goal, right? And that is in terms of uh, thinking about your experience and analyzing it, approaching it with the Abhidharma view in mind and with this idea of momentariness in mind. Okay. And since that view is going to be uh, conceptual, right? since it's going to describe things as this way and not that way, uh, well, it is not an ultimate perspective, so it must be a conventional perspective. Uh, by the way, if you are worried about what the content of the conventional truth of the meditator is. I think Prajnakaramati makes this perfectly clear a little bit later in, in quotation five, where he quotes Nagarjuna's Yukti Shashtika as follows. Just as the victors spoke about I and mine for specific purposes, in the same way for specific purposes, they spoke about aggregate spheres and components, that's skandha ayatanadhatu. So I think that pretty unambiguously indicates that the content of the conventional truth of the meditator is some form of abhidharma. Okay. Now, look at the last sentence of uh, quotation four. Moreover, to be ruled out by common belief is not to be ruled out simpliciter because that kind of belief is not a pramana. Okay? Now, I think that sentence directly contradicts the interpretation of Chandrakirti that I'm worried about. Okay? It, it, it directly contradicts the idea that as regards conventional truth, you can just read it off what um, is true from the ordinary pragmatic perspective of 
people around you in society. Now here's a really interesting question about the verse. Okay, verse 8 says that meditators see more accurately than the world we do. What does that mean? I mean, what could them seeing more accurately consist in? The obvious thing to say is that they, the way that they see things is more in accord with the way things really are. But of course, for a Madhyamaka, that option isn't available. Right? So what else could it consist in? Now, uh, in the usual fashion of Indian commentaries, which are least useful just when you need the most, uh, Prajnakaramati is going to gloss see more accurately with a synonym. Right? So, you know, no help whatsoever. Moreover, uh, there's a very straightforward reading. Right? The meditators see more accurately just in virtue of the fact that they're happier, that they suffer less. Right? or perhaps just in virtue of the fact that they're further along on the progression towards Buddhahood. Maybe that's what Prithnyakaramati has in mind. Nevertheless, right, what if we could say that the perspective of the meditators has a certain kind of advantage, a certain kind of superiority, just in virtue of the fact that it analyzes into parts or more fundamental aspects, the, uh, the world of ordinary experience, and thereby illuminates how the world of ordinary experience operates. Right? So its advantage wouldn't consist in getting at something which is more real. Okay? It still, though, could consist in getting at something which is, in a relational sense, uh, more fundamental, and deriving certain very valuable insights from that. I mean, I would suggest that that way of reading the, uh, the conventional truth of the meditator could do several different things for us. For one thing, it could help us to understand how science works. It could help us to understand how uh, looking at the smaller parts of things can help us to revise and correct our practices uh, that deal with larger things. Okay, moreover, and I won't go into this in any detail because I don't have time, um, it could help us to understand why Shantideva thinks that the ownerless suffering argument um, in Bodhicharya Avatar 8 makes any sense. Okay. Again, a key part of my motivation for starting to pursue this project. And early in the Buddhist tradition, somebody, possibly the historical Buddha, possibly one of his early followers, made a remarkable intellectual discovery, a truly historic breakthrough, namely the idea that agency and personal identity are based on, and indeed are nothing over and above, an interacting, interdependent set of impersonal causal processes. Okay. Now, some writers, and here again I have in mind Arnold, want us to discard that insight. Uh, and instead embrace the Madhyamaka view, which from his point of view uh, involves the irreducibility um, and inescapability of a first personal perspective. Okay. But so far as I can see, um, it, Sh Shantideva and Prajnakaramati are showing us a way to have our cake and eat it too. They're showing us a way to embrace the insights of the early Buddhist doctrine of no-self 
and thereby retain access to its profound transformative and liberatory potential, while at the same time recognizing that even that perspective is not a description of things as they really are. It's not a description of things as they are in themselves. It's another human conceptual framework uh, which is to be understood as provisional, pragmatic, and justified by its uh, usefulness, its benefits to us. Moreover, um, the, uh, the path that, that Prajnana Karmati and, and Shantideva are outlining for us, right? the way in which it opens up the door to the, vari the, the variety of different perspectives can help us to be serious about cultural diversity without embracing an extreme form of relativism, um, it, and it can enable us potentially to accommodate science uh, within an understanding of Madhyamaka. It's clearly uh, far more successfully um, than the, uh, the monological understanding of a conventional truth that some people read into Chandrakirti. Um, so I think that this passage in Bodhicharyavatara uh, opens up a very, very promising way for contemporary pragmatist and neo-pragmatist thought to help us in uh, developing Madhyamaka. Okay, Jay.